What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Episode 68 of the See Here podcast. If this is your first time, welcome. Our raison d'etre. That sounds pretentious and wanky. Never mind. The reason we're here is to talk about music-related films. We've been doing this for almost six years, and we have a lot of fun. When I say we, I mean myself. My name is Morris, and over in Bath is Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good evening. And normally, I'd be introducing our man in Brantford, Mr. Tim Merrill, but as I mentioned in last month's episode, he's taking a couple of months off. So, from Chicago, an author, a podcast veteran, I dare say, Mr. Mike McBeardo McPadden. Welcome to the show, Mike. Greetings. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for being a part of it. This month's episode is the film Heavy Trip from Finland, released in 2018, or Heavy Riesu, as it's known over there. And I thought, well, if we're going to be talking heavy metal, really, we need to go to the man who knows his heavy metal, and that do be you, because you've written a book about heavy metal movies, which we'll discuss in a moment. But one thing I do want to ask you is we have a love of Gilbert and Frank in common, and your oh, yes. your role at Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is as social media person. So what do you actually do? Well, what I do is I run the Facebook page. It's become such an enormous empire. We have other people running Twitter and Instagram now. So, uh, But when we started, I did all three. I did uh, all of that. So what I do is I just listen to the uh, podcast like everybody else and put up multimedia equivalents. So if they're talking about a film, I'll put up clips from that film or a trailer. They're talking about Randolph Scott and Cary Grant proving how heterosexual they are by posing for some of the most homoerotic photos ever taken. <laughs> I put up those photos. I give a visual and interactive accompaniment to the podcast via Facebook. So i got to ask, every time that you've heard the story again about Danny Thomas or Cesar Romero, <laughs> do you think, oh, I've run out of so many photos of orange wedges. And what he was into was he'd surround himself with a bunch of boy toys and then pull down his pants 
in underwear. Allegedly. And and these <laughs> allegedly these boys would be instructed to fling orange wedges at his ass. Allegedly. Some allegedly. argue that it was tangerines. <laughs> It's not a problem because then there's the amazing Colossal Listener Society where we have tremendously talented artists and Photoshop technicians that never cease to supply us with new spins on old saws such as the glass table and the orange wedges. I don't know what it is, but I never tire of those stories. I'm thinking, yes, oh, no. greatest <laughs> hits. Yes, let's have it again. There's slight subtle variations in each telling. It's just it, it, each yeah. time it's the same but different, isn't it? And that makes it just a pleasure each and every time. Very much. And, you know, it was uh, a listener recently pointed out because uh, Jim Bouton, who was a baseball pitcher here on the Yankees, who wrote a scandalous book called Ball Four in the 70s about the sex, drugs and rock and roll aspect of America's game that was not covered anywhere. He told a story about one of the other players was hired by somebody to throw oranges at the guy's butt. And so that seems to be the genesis of the Cesar Romero myth. Oh, why? Wow, you heard it here, folks. That's, uh, yeah. that's an exclusive. And that was, that was discovered by a, somebody in the Listener Society. And poor Gilbert, he probably doesn't want to look into it. He says, no, no, no. It was Cesar <laughs> Romero, Latin author. It's truth, yeah. While we're on the subject, this place smells like a... I think. Can I ask you, Mike, how did you get the gig with Gil and Frank? Do you sort of know Frank from back in the day? Yeah, I've been a fan of Gilbert forever and immediately heard the first podcast, went to see if they had a Facebook page or anything else, and they did, and there was nothing going on there. I contacted Frank and I said, oh, right. uh, give, me, give me one day. If you don't like what I do, no harm, no foul. I'll remain a fan. And that was it. So I just showed him my ideas and uh, we've taken it from there. It's been five years. Wow. Well, it pays to be proactive, doesn't it, Mike? Yeah. That's great. Can you have a word in Frank's ear and get him to come back on our show? Oh, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> He's the best. It did turn out, when you mentioned did I know him, we had a lot of friends in common from New York. From oh, back wow, okay. Our paths never crossed. Frank is interesting because he's the only guy from Parsons and the School of Visual Arts at that time, so this is, you know, the 70s and the 80s, who was in no way part of the punk rock world that I knew. We have a lot of those friends in common and Drew Friedman and things like that. I'm connected to a lot of those Oh, wow, people. okay, yeah. I can't ever imagine Frank in any way, shape or form <laughs> <laughs> dressing up or looking remote punk to be honest you know, subjecting yeah. himself to loud obnoxious music that yeah. you know, wasn't recorded by some old B celebrity for a novelty record I always was under the impression that yeah he'd be more the Hollywood musicals sort of guy but he does like his 60s and 70s pop so yeah 60s pop and there's a lot of punk crossover with that too but that's I think his primary interest is you know girl groups and uh, the Brill building you know the, the British invasion or back rack and what have you yeah I, I suggested to him ages ago uh, you in contact with Bert Bacharach he said I can say no more so I'm, I'm hoping that, that event, <laughs> I'm hoping that eventually comes off Bert wouldn't get a word in edgewise it'd be Gilbert the entire time saying okay I want to sing this song with you uh, can you play the piano yeah. <laughs> but going from one end of the musical spectrum to another end you are the author of a couple of books and one of those books is the reason that we reached out to you that's called Heavy Metal Movies so before we get to speaking about the film and I'm sure that a large chunk of our audience would already be familiar with your book because like us are fans of Gilbert or fans of some of the other podcasts that you've been on. But for those who don't know, give us a little bit of an explanation as to how it was that you came to write heavy metal movies. Heavy metal movies was born 
born in 2010. There was a book called Destroy All Movies, The Complete History of Punks in Film by Brian Connolly and Zach. I'm so sorry, Zach. I just blanked on your last name. (laughs) I can't believe it. Uh, The guys from the Alamo Draft House. The book is completely incredible. I had been waiting a long time for it to come out. I was flipping through to Quimby's Bookstore, which is our great sort of uh, social hub here in Chicago for all kinds of alternative media. And I walked up to the counter with it. And Liz Mason, who is the manager of the store, was at the register. And I said, "Okay, Liz, I am taking this book home and I'm going to pitch the heavy metal answer book because I was so impressed on the spot. And that's what I did. I had been friends with a publisher named Ian Christie of Bazillion Points. They published books about heavy metal. He and I had become friends just casually through Facebook and more, you know, people in common. He sent me a message once saying, you will know this. What is the porno movie with the guy from the cream of wheat box that comes to life and a slice of bread plays the saxophone? And I said, oh, that's Night Dreams by the great Steve Sayadian, a.k.a. Rinse Dream from 1981. So we became friends after that. So I pitched him. Him, uh, heavy metal movies and three and a half years of writing it every day later uh, the book came to be and the book the premise of the book was to document there were different levels of movies that qualified so any movie that you know documentaries and concert films easy then uh, movies that contained heavy metal or about heavy metal so that would be like this is Spinal Tap but then that contained heavy metal characters such as uh, Wayne's World and Bill and Ted excellent oh then there was another level of movies that had inspired heavy metal songs or albums and Iron Maiden must have had like 20 of them. Including uh, The Loneliness of a Long Distance Runner, which was interesting. And... The most fun, though, is movies that sort of that just embody the spirit and have influenced the aesthetic of heavy metal. So that's, you know, Conan the Barbarian, The Road Warrior, Mad Max 2 in Australia, sorry, in the Commonwealth. Thank you. Uh, uh, you know, the Wicker Man, The Exorcist. I found reading like on the Bazillion Points website that it mentioned The Wicker Man. And I was sort of thinking that was an unusual choice in terms of spirit. So could you sort of describe a little bit more about how you would pick a film like The Wicker Man for a book like uh, that? The Wicker Man, well, you have the occult aspect of it and the absolute doom and hopelessness of the ending. Well, we will probably spoiler alert us here. And the <laughs> infernal imagery of just everything about that. The defeat of Christianity. The British Isle paganism. All of these are deeply intertwined with heavy metal. And now, you know, heavy metal has just flowered into so many different iterations, including folk metal. And, you know, so the ultimate folk horror and and metal and and horror movies go back to the band Black Sabbath. Before they were called Black Sabbath, they were called Earth. They were a blues band. Uh, I believe it was Geezer Butler, the bassist. They were practicing once and they saw a uh, line of people across the street lined up at a a cinema to see the Boris Karloff, Mario Bava film Black Sabbath. And he said to the others, isn't it funny all those people lined up to get scared, paying and thinking that's a good time? And they sort of said, well, what if we made music that scared people? And they changed their name to Black Sabbath. And the proto-metal that had been bubbling around in the form of Blue Cheer and uh, Coven and other things really was just leapt perfectly formed from the tar pit at that point, right out of hell. So, you know, very much tied in with that tradition. And again, the doom, the absolute doom of it. When you explained that, I'm thinking, why the fuck didn't I think that? (laughs) 
<laughs> There's also an Iron Maiden ma- a song called The Wicker Man about the movie. All right, so what we're going to do now, we're going to go to a quick break and we're going to play the trailer for today's film from Finland. Heavy Trip, a.k.a. Heavy Reissue, will be back. You're listening to See Here, episode 68. You boys look like a weird heavy metal band. Yes, we are a band. Hallon sille meidän demo. Vasta jatka pila festari. Tää. Lattisitko joku päivän minun kanssa vaikka kahville? No kyllä mulla aina kahvit maistuu. Kata se tyttörau! Tuossa noin rehuostokset jostain muualta. Kato, mä oon saanut pehmitellä tätä muijaa jo niin pitkään, että sinä et tuu pilaamaan sitä. Arvaa mitä? No. Turolla ja se bändillä on keikka Norjassa. I am uh, sorry we have no room for you in this year's festival. Sinfonista, postapokalyptista, Randy Grinding, Christ Abusing, Extreme Sotapakana, Fennuskandi Metal. Se olisi taas ysissä kolemmaisilla paskat housussa. Taas. Taas. <tos> And we're back, Morris over here, Bernie over there, Mike somewhere else over there, and we're here to discuss the film from 2018, Heavy Reissue, in English known as Heavy Trip. I'm probably going to murder some of these names. Directed by Juso Latio and Juka Vigram, written by those two fellows, as well as Alexi Puranen and Jari Olavi Rantala. I think I've seriously screwed that up. Uh, that was super brave of you, Morris. That's, thank, uh, thank you. The fact that you're even trying is uh, you deserve props for that. I think it'd be disrespectful to say, yeah, starring some guys. All right, so here I go. I got one more shot at this. So the film stars Johannes Holopainen as Turo, who is the vocalist of the band under consideration. Samuli Jaskio as Lotvonen, the guitarist. Antti Heikinen as Jinxi, the drummer. And Max Ovaska as Pasi later to be known as Zitrax on the bass. So the plot in IMDB is described as Turo is trying to overcome his fears by leading the most unknown heavy metal band in Finland, Impaled Rectum, to the hottest metal festival of Norway. The journey includes heavy metal, grave robbing, Viking heaven, and an armed conflict between Finland and Norway. Yep, IMDb up to their usual high standard of film description. So we'll reveal more about this as we go, and we'll probably get into a lot of spoiler territory. So get out and watch this on Canopy or on Prime or on DVD if it's available. So I want to go around the table and find out first impressions. Mike, what did you first think of this film? Had you actually seen this before we asked you? Uh, no, but it was in my prime queue. So you uh, got me to bump it up. 
first impressions, uh, it was uh, a quality production. It looked great. It sounded great. I didn't find it particularly new or exciting or funny. It was a comedy. You know, it was it was it was not painful to get through. So you know, it was uh, okay. I would give it a you know an okay rating. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of I'm going to echo Mike really. I, I think it was. Uh... A mixed bag definitely had some issues with it. I think the biggest thing, and I'm sure we'll return to this, is that I didn't find it hugely funny for a comedy. I like the fact that whoever wrote it and they did their research as far as the metal and the different types of metal, all that kind of stuff felt quite authentic and, you know, somebody knew what they were doing there. But, yeah, it's it's got some issues, I think. I watched it one and a bit times, and the bit was just to sort of catch up on a few specific scenes wanted to remind myself of certain things okay it has these two distinct phases the first while the band is getting their stuff together in their small town and the second while they're on the road to this festival this northern damnation festival and I hear what you guys are saying about it being not necessarily a hugely funny film and maybe some bits about it are predictable. But once I sort of got into the mentality of viewing that, okay, it's not necessarily going to come up with anything new in terms of comedic value and some of the issues there might be. Yeah, okay, we could see that coming. We could predict that coming. I just sort of tended to watch it for the authenticity and I just tended to see it as as a sweet film. I like the fact that it didn't tend to take the piss out of the band there seems to be a common thing and this is not necessarily linked just to metal movies but it seems to have been a common theme in films maybe older music related films where it's hollywood's interpretation of what the band is like and aren't they weird but well this isn't hollywood and we know that finland and scandinavia in particular has a long history with metal music so when the band was playing it was genuine metal music it was the sort of thing that i believe that fans of finnish metal would actually listen to that and think hey that's actually a really good song or a really good rendition of someone else's song and i watched the film with my son max who is a huge metal fan and maybe something of a walking historian and i watch it and i think his feelings about the film was similar to you guys but he said but the film was not disrespectful and yeah sure maybe i was tending to watch it more in that light okay is this going to be taking the piss out of him or yeah i didn't sort of look on it as being like a buster gut funny sort of film which yeah you're right it wasn't but i wasn't looking for the next spinal tap or even the next a mighty wind or something like that if you want to take a different genre of funny I, I just sort of looked at it and thought yeah it's a sweet film it's a more a film about the sort of things that people have to go through on a day-to-day basis with something that they're passionate about and the other people around don't understand you and that's a common theme in films but i think that side of it was done really really well here and you, you have two communities you have the community of the band and they find strength in each other without feeling overly sorry for each other about them being outsiders in the village but then yeah you do get the bogans or the hicks the rednecks in the village who either want to make fun of them or want to jump on their bandwagon when there's the possibility that the band itself is going to get this big gig in norway so i found myself actually really enjoying it for the first 
two-thirds. I think once they get out on the road and they try to sort of do a Blues Brothers side right. to them, I think, okay, that's where it lost me. But the first third where it's got issues that anyone can relate to, regardless of whether you identify as a metal fan or even a music fan, it has things that I think a lot of people can identify. And I think that part was done well. I would agree with you very strongly there. And you, you use the word sweet, which is completely on the money. And I was that was not in my head until you said it. Mm. Clearly affectionate. My favorite moment in the movie is when the guitar player was attempting to come up with new riffs and uh, the bass was just naming each song. Walk. Pantera 92. No, it's Children of Bodom. Every time I die, 2000 laiho. Orsupita. Sermon. Melodedöö. Oulusta. Crucified. Necrobutcher of Infernal Legions, 89. Uh, no matter how weird they got, he was naming a real song and the, and the year it was from. And they said that, you know, he's a freak, he knows every song. And certainly anybody that's been involved in a, in a band or a music scene knows more than a few freaks of that nature. I thought that was terrific. And having watched a lot of documentaries for the book about European metal and particularly Northern European metal in small towns, these bands become a real part of the fabric there. And they are all supported very strongly by the entire cross-section of people in the community. I initially blanched a little when they showed the people harassing the heavy metal guy like it was the 80s and these were the bullies from a movie. And I was thinking, where, where I don't know that metal guys were ever harassed like that or called anti-homosexual epithets because even in the 80s when I was in high school, they were frightening. The punks were weird, arty kids. They definitely got picked on, but the metal guys were always intimidating. But it did show, and I liked what you said, first everybody wanted to make fun of them and then once the tide appeared to have turned, they jumped on the bandwagon. As you indicated there, Mike, in Scandinavia and in Finland, particularly because for this film, heavy metal is seen as part of the national culture in a way. It's not very much as, yeah. not seen as something on the outside. So that sort of rang as being a little bit inauthentic. But, yeah. but they had a story to tell. They wanted to tell it this way. So, all right, I'll go along with that. The other thing that I liked about how the film presents itself, when you sort of think of other band films, that can be based on real bands, fictitious stories, films like, you know, The Commitments or The Doors or That Thing You Do, or a film that I really enjoyed from the 90s that no one seems to remember called Bandwagon. In each one of those films, the story is about a band's genesis, their shoot up to the top or to the middle, and then how they split up at the end, but how they're affected and how they're changed. This film does have a little bit of them being changed by the end of it. They've found their courage, but it's not an origin story. This is a band that's fully formed, and they've always believed in themselves, and I just like that side of it. I think, in a way, what this reminds me of is a film that was covered on this podcast, I think, with Hank Hellman. Hi, Hank, if you're listening. We Are The Best, which was the three schoolgirls who form a punk band and, sure. uh, and are mocked mercilessly by uh, the other kids in school who just see them as a bunch of outsiders. And their outsiderliness is what causes them to make this band and sing about things like hate the sport and all the other things that the mainstream don't like. In this film the band aren't reacting to the outside it's just their brothers in metal this is what they love but 
they're both films about people who form this great bond but to me anyway not presented in a corny way and obviously there's a Leningrad Cowboys Goes America aspect of it with a coffin on the car on a road trip I think the biggest issue I had with the film was the writing in terms of how generalised things were. It felt very kind of broad. Mm-hmm. The humour was, you know, and it almost felt like a kind of sitcom in a way. You know, we were talking about how it's a sweet movie, and it definitely is, but I think in deciding to go that route, they kind of purposely didn't give any of the humour any sort of edge or darkness. It's very kind of slapstick, and as I say, it's very broad. And I don't know if, I don't know how this would sound, but I don't know if it's just a difference in sense of humour, because you don't know what the Finnish sense of humour is like. Maybe this is how their humour generally works, and maybe I'm being a bit mean on kind of picking on that aspect of it, but because of that, it it took a lot out of the movie for me. Maybe it was as much about wanting to get non-metal people as well as metal people the metal fans and the musicians in the film were treated with the utmost respect but at the same time they wanted to say well hey even if you don't like metal come on in and join this and it may have also been an international market thinking well let's paint broad brush strokes because that's what people who aren't necessarily fans of the music will come for will identify if we try to get too dark or too specific we're going to chase away part of our audience but then it's kind of sold as a, a heavy metal film isn't it one thing i did like about the film is just the general aesthetic of it, it looks really nice and that kind of landscape has obviously been super influential in a lot of metal over the years particularly sort of black metal and things like that and I think it does a really good job of capturing that kind of bleak and yet beautiful landscape that they come from, how that kind of informs what they do. When the film opens, we see a shot of Turo coming towards a camera from down the road and we see a reindeer crossing the road. And I, I want to come back to the theme of reindeer in a few minutes. But my first impression watching that was, ah, this is going to be an ensemble piece in the uh, northern exposure vein. I think a northern exposure for <laughs> I think of is the moose, moose yeah. crossing the, moose, yeah. crossing the road. Is it going to be like that? And it certainly is sweet like that, but the people of this town are not as lovely as the people of, of Sicily. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with the, the comedy really fell flat throughout to me, to the point that I was focusing on the landscapes and saying, wow, that's beautiful photography. What a beautiful countryside. <laughs> and, uh, Great minds. Yeah, I can't, I can't think of one joke that made me laugh in the entire film, so... Maybe I'm just easier to please, but I think their running gag, their version of the we're on a mission from God, of right. cl- classifying their music as symphonista post-apocalyptista reindeer grinding Christ abusing extreme sotapakana pennus condimental. I'm sorry, I actually liked it, but <laughs> oh, when Passy says that, first of all, that was a real kind of look at your shoes in cringy embarrassment moment. And then the fact that he had repeated it several times during the film. Sorry, I don't know. That, that, that really didn't work for me. I, I've got to go with you on that. I rolled my eyes. I made the note, please. I wrote yeah. please on my paper. <laughs> I find I had to really enjoy that moment because whenever I'm having discussions with Max, he'll say to me, oh, have you heard of this subdivision of metal or that subdivision of metal? And I'm thinking, my Lord, how many subdivisions are there? And that bit struck me as funny because it seemed to me to come 
from a place of truth. It's played for comedic effect by doing so many terms in the description, but really more than anything else I can think of. And I'm basing this purely on my discussions with Max. There seems to be a lot of subdivisions in metal music. Uh, it, it, endless and, and endlessly reinventing. But that was much like the band's name, Impaled Rectum. I did think you have to do better than that. They, yeah. I felt like those two gags were the hackiest choice you could have made. And the, the fact that they just repeated them over and over, yeah. very low mileage as far as laughs go in the first place, but you just repeat that over and over and it just hammers it into the ground and didn't enjoy either of those uh, gags, I'm afraid. Talking of metal subdivisions, though, another thing I did really like was the band lineup. You had the guitar player who was like totally old school thrash metal, just, you know, the way they dressed and how they looked yeah. and acted. And Patsy, the bass player, was obviously like the black metal guy. The drummer, I'd, I'd say, was probably kind of like the death metal drummer. Yeah. You know, they kind of had those little subdivisions in there. Mm. That was a nice touch, I thought. Well, there you go. If, if you're going to go down that road, then those subdivisions meant that they could still work together as a community. I mean, it's getting pretentious here, but I could say, well, you know, this is a metaphor for how we can work as a community. Oh, good point. Yeah, yeah. Earlier on in this podcast, Mike, you were saying that one of your inspirations for creating your book was destroy all movies. And I'd read a book. I think it was called This Ain't the Summer of Love. Great and, book. And Loved it. I read that about four or five years ago or so. And I'm more of like a a pop punk guy if anything and classic metal i'm not really that ensconced in either world but i just found the book absolutely fascinating so for me to read that and find out that for years that the punks and the metal guys absolutely were at each other's throats and hated each other's guts it for me as an outsider it made absolutely no sense so i was sort of wondering whether metal guys in a similar sort of vein whether the death people and the doom people and the black metal people will mock each other or just say no no that's cool man we're into it all or you can like what you like we're into this and this film it seems to indicate that well yep sure we're, we're, all, we're all as a community we're good we take these different influences and see what we can bring into this one band the punk metal wars and uh growing up in brooklyn at the time i remember this vividly started always as a punk guy but i also loved classic metal as you said and did, they did seem to come from the same place for me which was the argument of that book the saint the summer of love you know metallica really tore that down and that was the the crossover as it was called so the thrash bands took metal and put the propulsion and the lyrics of punk into it mm. and then grunge later took punk and put some of the power and the drama of metal into that so i think since then everybody's kind of into the same thing you know hardcore guys love metal and i mean you, you have the fanatics and particularly among i would imagine the black metal church burning community sure uh, yeah. who, who will be very pure Right. But I think in general, my experience has been that punk and metal and, and hard rock in general, everybody embraces one another's favorite cultures. And uh, I did like that sort of not that they were the village people, but they were they were definitely four pieces of different parts of the metal yeah. pie that came together. nicely. while we're talking just a little bit about the characters. I thought that Turo, and I come back to this thing of sweet, but his sweetness and awkwardness, he sort of reminded me a lot of the character of Gregory in Gregory's Girl. What's the idea? Coming to people's doors, suggesting people's sisters. Act your age. Go and break some windows. Demolish some phone boxes. 
Was that a film that made it to your 80s sex comedy book? It certainly did. What a charming, lovely, you know, even beautiful film. That word came right out of my mouth, uh, and I tried to stop it for some reason. <laughs> uh, I love Ray's Girl. I was uh, 13 when it hit the States. I saw it in the theater. It was a big hit here in the States, in New York City. You know, it was an art house hit. Yeah, so yes, that's in my book, very much. I wouldn't have thought of that, and definitely I see echoes of Gregory in Turo. They're both gangly, they're both awkward, both have crushes on a girl that they think are unattainable. Well, in Gregory's case, one is. Um... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to just also briefly touch on film tropes that in a way I think that this film avoids or maybe does a little bit better. So the trope that this film has that is used in other band films but done slightly different to my way of thinking is when you see a, a film like you know, whatever the commitments or that thing you do where the band either is getting started at the beginning of the film or they're holding auditions or whatever and the first gig is always unsuccessful but it's usually unsuccessful for reasons of musical incompetence and that never sort of made sense because you sort of think that by the time you've rehearsed that much and you've got your first gig you should be sounding great and you probably do sound great but inevitably things go wrong because they have to have that arc to the end of the film where they finally triumph and they're sounding absolutely shit hot immaculate before they break up because of internal band friction or they move on to the next thing in this film the first gig is unsuccessful because of Turo's nerves which yeah I can see where that was probably an annoying moment for either of you he does a <laughs> he hurls I'll accede to that but I like the fact that it wasn't for reasons of them being musically incompetent they were a great band in rehearsal there was no reason for cymbals to fall off or them to be out of time or anything like that so I like that they played that film trope a little bit differently to how it would be in some of these other films in a weird way when Turo hurls I was thinking of Lady Snowblood because <laughs> no vomit in that, but Japanese swords and violent films will often have fire hydrant levels of arterial spray. Yeah, correct. Yeah. My issue with that was that it telegraphed to me that this would be repeated. The yeah. second time it happened, it would be a triumph and the crowd would love it. Spoiler alert, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we did warn them. Look, yeah. it's, it's that broad Finnish humour, I guess. It, you know, they just love a projectile vomit gag. There was none in Leningrad Cowboys, though, Bernie. Uh, true. I suspect with all the uh, drinking going on, there's probably some behind the scenes, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> none actually on film, yeah. I can see what you're saying, Mike, and I agree. What I was thinking was going to happen was that everyone was going to look at Turo and he was going to hold it in. They did go that way of, yeah, I'm to vomit and everyone's going to think, dude, that is the most metal thing ever. But I did like when the drummer after that said, you know, this is legendary, this, this gig, will because that's the truth. A disastrous first gig in the course of a band's life 
very much becomes the stuff of legend. And I did think that definitely rang true to me where he said, you know, forget it. It's, you know, it, it was great. It was amazing. It was, you know, a once in a lifetime event. Puking on the audience is a pretty kind of metal move, really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would have thought it's more of a punky sort of thing. Well, again, this is where they all come together. You know, body fluids, disgustingness, offense. You say, you say tomato, I'll say tomato. I did actually quite enjoy the scene where Turo goes to the zoo to face his fear, to face his lion, and he jumps into the pit with that wolverine and gets attacked by the wolverine. But most of that scene was just kind of like, oh yeah, there's a rubber wolverine stuck to him. But there is a brief moment where he's holding the wolverine down and punching it repeatedly in the face. I did actually let out a little laugh at that point. I thought that that was kind of vaguely amusing. Reporting you to the RSPCA, Bernie. (laughs) I found Jinky, their drummer, to be probably the most endearing character out of all four of them. I mean, they all have traits. That's another thing. I guess in a lot of band films, there'll always be that one guy who's the asshole, and none of them were. They were right. they're yeah. all really characters that you'd warm to and would be happy to say, Hey, come on round for a beer this afternoon. But Jinky was the band's cheerleader. He wasn't even gonna let death twice in this film stop him from the band getting to play that awesome show at the Norwegian Metal Festival. There's that moment in the film which I really, really, really did love. This if we were the sort of podcast that would do MVTs or high moments, I'd say for me it was the band photo that they take while going past the speed camera and he's looking at it later on I, I sort of wish that they'd had like a covering the whole screen the final photo but we only get to see it when Turo is thinking about giving up and the object of his affection gives him the photo and he just like looks at it takes up part of the screen I think that would have been an amazing 16 to 9 ratio photo that we could have seen but in any event I was surprised we didn't get to see it especially in that type of form but look you know he was definitely the heart of the band and I don't even care if we play a car park I really don't care you know it's right it's not about that it's just you know we'll find some people who want to listen to us it's okay you know we're friends and this is just what we do it's not about millions of dollars of success it's just about enjoying ourselves and that might seem to be like a band film trope but i've warmed so much to his character that i really like how it's presented here so that's a positive that i take away from it i'm just going to sound like i'm being totally negative about the film there were aspects to it i did like I i should qualify before i say anything else but I think it really loses the plot towards the end of the film. As you mentioned earlier, when they go on the the kind of Blues Brothers kind of road trip, particularly with them passing from Finland into Norway and how the kind of border patrol and the army gets involved. That's just some like super bad sitcom 101 writing. It's very, very bad. None of that worked for me at all. They get out of that scrape and then bump into some Vikings, of course, who aren't actually real Vikings, but then how that transpires, where that goes, and how they actually arrive at the festival, it just went too far for me. I don't know. What do you guys think? The, the most I, I did, he does at one point yell, we're on a mission from Satan. <laughs> and when the army woman, I don't know what her rank was, but she says, I love Satan as much as anyone. I thought, okay, yeah. that was an amusing yeah. line. That was pretty funny. I didn't hate them in the dragon boat, the LARPing, because that's definitely part of the whole metal world is the LARPing and the Viking 
recreation and uh yeah sure it was okay but again yeah no it was it was like the blues brothers or stripes it just has become a different movie at this point yeah and, but but on a very small and not effective scale look i sort of thought it was like the difference between the first 30 minutes and the rest of from dusk till dawn sure in both movies that's where it jumps the shark to use that gilbert yeah. gottfried podcast favorite phrase as much as i really enjoyed the first two thirds and i'm glad in a way that that took up the majority of the film i'll defend the first two thirds of the film i thought okay i'm not going to sort of like look at it as a laugh a moment film buster gut type of funny film i'm just going to enjoy it for what it is and the relationships between the band and their friendship it held me in good stead and i really really enjoyed that but yeah that moment where they're on the road and as you say that whole fracas with the norwegian border patrol this was so unneeded i wrote a line of dialogue down they get mixed up with another bus of people who are uh, on a jesus and his disciples bachelor party weekend yes because of course that's i think one of them actually says this is the greatest idea ever um <laughs> i just it really really was not <laughs> that was really just stretching things to a breaking point mm. there's three sharks being jumped at that point I think. yes Oh, well, all right. Well, I think probably final thoughts. I mean, I know that you guys are not necessarily great fans of the film, but I guess for our listeners out there who are probably thinking, well, well, do we bother to go watch this now? If you have interest in heavy metal and movies, I would say this is, you know, again, it was not an unpleasant experience. So, yeah, it was a fine, breezy you know, hour and a half or, or whatever it was. So, yeah, if this dovetails with your interest, then yeah, by all means, enjoy it. I wouldn't recommend it as a way to penetrate the world of heavy metal or heavy metal movies if you're not actively interested in those things. Well, I'm going to echo what Mike says again, really. I, I think if, if you're into metal, I think there's some stuff here that you would enjoy. I think if you're like a 12-year-old metalhead, you would actually <laughs> probably find it kind of funny. Can you, like, shut up? But it is very light and just a bit too broad for me as I keep going back to that phrase. But as, as far as the comedy goes, and yes, it's a film about metal, but yes, it's also sold as a comedy. And when you watch a comedy and it's not very funny, you feel a little shortchanged. So the metal aspects are pretty good if you like that kind of thing. As a comedy, I don't think it's particularly successful. I guess your mileage will vary, so make of that what you will. I'd probably rate it higher than either of you gentlemen. I definitely think that this is worth a view i agree it's not buster gut funny but the sweetness of it and the characters we should probably just sort of point out there are two central characters that we haven't really mentioned yet i'll only mention one of them and that's mia the object of turo's affections and i felt sorry for her because she really had probably the most thankless role in the film just to be there yeah, as object of affection yeah. i would like to have seen yeah something more with her i don't know dug out a guitar from behind the floor counter and said no 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 you got to play it like this and it turns out that she's actually been a secret metal guitar player or in fact that she could double up for drums once a uh, jinky dies yeah. but that would have been pretty metal but yeah look the other thing that i sort of took away from this is there's actually a fellow in finland called professor essa lilia and now i've definitely mispronounced that who is actually an academic on metal music 
and he's gone and written papers and he actually got his doctorate back in 2009. So I sort of found that fascinating. And after reading about him, then went to an article about Finnish metal bands. So I found myself listening to a range of Finnish metal bands. Like one of them I knew was Nightwish. I'd heard Nightwish long ago, but also found bands like Amorphous, which was symphonic metal, or you mentioned folk metal before, Mike. Uh, they were, I think, yep. around from the early 90s. I found a band called Berit, which was not my thing. They're black metal. Children of Bodom, which were, I guess, more melodic death metal. Two more bands I'll mention. One was Turisus, which had a violin and accordion. They were quite interesting, but I found, I posted in the See Here group their film clip. They did a cover version of the Boney M hit Rasputin. Listening to them cover, I thought, it's amazing this wasn't done as a metal song to begin with. It works so completely in this fashion. But one band which I think I want to go out and buy some of this stuff, I really, really enjoyed this, it was a band called Apocalyptica. And that's basically metal as played by a cello quartet. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They were amazing. They were really, really good. I'd go out and buy their albums, or you know, maybe if there's a good anthology, I'll settle for that. But I really dug that. So watching this film, it meant I've done a little bit of investigation. Think, you know, that's that's definitely a positive that's come out of it. And as a film, I'd say for the first two thirds, I really like it for what it is as a character study of these guys who are outsiders. And once they get to the festival, so the the road trip there, which is only I think maybe about 20 minutes worth of a film that doesn't work but the final bit where they actually make it to play at the concert and what happens as a result there i enjoyed that quite a fair bit as well so i'd definitely say if you're sort of wondering either way my recommendation yeah give this a watch maybe not necessarily going out and buying the dvd but if if you see it on canopy or prime then give it a watch 90 minutes 100 minutes it's a really enjoyable way to uh spend a little bit of time it's certainly probably a a more enjoyable experience than lords of chaos yeah (laughs) so i'm in the minority here i like lords of chaos there's just no accounting for taste as we all know Symphonista postapokalyptista reindeer grinding Christ abusing extremes otapakana fennoskandi metallia So that concludes our discussion of this month's film, Heavy Trip, Heavy Reissue. Next month's film we'll talk about in a moment uh, because Bernie has all the details on that. I just wanted to say once again, huge thanks to you, Mike McBeardo McPadden for joining us on this episode. And we would love to have you back, maybe for a film that you actually like. Uh, Sure. (laughs) The thanks are mutually huge on this end. I'm honored. Oh, that's Thank you so much. Very sweet. Yeah, yeah. 
And Please, as we... Morris said, do come back and maybe you could pick a film next time. So Anytime. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. We're definitely up for that. I wish I'd said this during the actual discussion, but there was another film that this made me think of. If you think of the film from the reindeer's perspective, the opening scene of the film, the reindeer's walking across the street, minding its own business. We find that one of the main characters, he works on his parents' farm where they kill reindeer for reindeer meat and reindeer blood. And then a reindeer walks across the road, then kills the drummer who's trying to swerve to avoid it. So it's a reindeer revenge film. And in that way, <laughs> you could you could almost say that this film is like Death Wish wow. from, a, from a reindeer's perspective. I was going to say uh, Long Weekend. A reindeer death wish, I'll take that. That's fine. Sure. <laughs> so yeah, it's a little bit of a shorter leap to Long Weekend, but I, I like the uh, yeah the bold metal stage dive toward death wish. You didn't think that that reindeer looked a little bit like Charles Bronson? <laughs> well, now I do, yeah, forever. I think, uh, I think Eli Roth is going to be making this, uh, remaking this film with Bruce Willis as the reindeer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once again, huge thanks to you, Mike. And so people who want to be able to get hold of a copy of Heavy Metal Movies or Teen Movie Hell, how can they do this? Bazillionpoints.com. Write to the publisher. You get a collector's patch with each book, each customized for the book. So each book has its own individual little fetish object that comes along with it. And uh, Bazillion Points is a wonderful publisher. So bazillionpoints.com. In the States, is the book available in any bricks and mortar type stores as well? You know, basically, if you go to, uh, we have Quimby's here in Chicago. There's Wacko Books in LA. It's definitely available in the big chain stores to some degree, but if you go to your independent bookstores, you're much more likely to see it. Well, go out there, folks. If you have any love of cinema in general and sex comedies of the <laughs> 80s and heavy metal films as broadly classified by Mike at the start of the show, and there's, I believe there's 666 films reviewed in the There's book. actually 850, but, you know, I had to stick with the cooler number. So. <laughs> right, of course. Anything you can do to keep Mike in sex comedies and metal, keep him living the dream. Yeah, please. Go out and buy the books. So do you have another project planned, Mike? I do, but I'm not at liberty to discuss it at this point. So. Okay, all right. Well, but it's you're... yeah, it's a, it's another movie compendium book. Yeah, we want to get dibs on your first announcement of it. So okay, when, you got it. When got you it. know it, we're invo- we're having you back, even if it's only just it. mention that. All right, so next month, that'll be October of 2019, will be our next episode of See Here, and it'll be episode 69. Oh, matron, take them away. Oh. I was really hoping that we could find a music film that was that had sexy time, but I'm not sure that we have. But anyway, it's your pick oh, well. for next month, Bernie. You've already mentioned something to me that sounded really, really interesting. After having a little discussion with you, and because uh, Tim's not going to be with us for a few months, I've asked a friend of mine to join us, my friend Rachel. Not only is she a huge fan, she is a bit of an expert. Strangely enough, she is currently working on a book as well about Jane Birkin. She's a huge fan and aficionado of Jane Birkin. So next month, she has decided to uh, come on and talk with us about a film which doesn't feature Jane Birkin, but it does feature Serge Gainsbourg, who I believe wrote the film, and I think he wrote most of the music for the film. It was uh, the very first colour film made for French television, released in 1967, and it's called Anna. Not a film I've seen, already that aware of, but it sounds interesting and quirky and up our alley. And as I say, my friend Rachel, 
Shaw is going to join us and uh, we're going to be talking about that next month. Very exciting. And given that you mentioned that the songs were written by Serge, maybe it will still be sexy time for episode 69. I think Serge didn't do one damn thing in his life that wasn't sexy. So I, I think there's a good chance. Yeah. <laughs> oh, OK, so next month, Anna and extremely looking forward to uh, watching that. And talking about that film for next month, if you want to get hold of us, uh, you can join our Facebook group. That's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast. You can email us at see here podcast at gmail.com. If you want to find multiple ways to listen to us, you can do so on Stitcher, on Spotify, on the app of your choice, like Podcast Addict, or you can go to seehere.podbean.com, download from the website. Not many people do that, but it's an option. Instagram details, Ben? Yeah, just search for See Here Podcast, all one word, or at See Here Podcast. You can find us on there and follow us and enjoy the extremely sporadic posts that I uh, that I make. Well, at least one a month, right? At least one a month, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> And look, this is going to date the show, but basically I need to get this announcement out. We're recording this late September 2019, which means it's about six or seven weeks away from the Melbourne cinema debut of a film that we discussed back in February, the library music film. So if you've been listening to our show, then you know that this film exists and you know about library music and you're possibly thinking, how do I get to watch this film? Well, if you're in Melbourne, I've made a way available for you. I've gone and booked a lovely little venue in North Fitzroy called Long Play. It's a bar at the front and a cinema at the back. Not a very big cinema, only room for 30. So please make sure you're early on the night. But I've gone and arranged with the director, Paul Elliott. We'll be doing a Skype Q&A and we'll be showing the film and it should be a really, really wonderful night. So November 9th, Long Play, I can't remember, St. George's Road in North Fitzroy. Look up the details, do a Google for that. But I've gone and created an event which is in the See Here podcast group page. So you can click interested or that you're coming. That'd be lovely. And if you're uh, interstate and you want to make the drive down to Melbourne, we'd love to have you. So that should be a lot of fun. Go back and listen to that episode of the podcast to remind yourself how wonderful library music is. We're all big fans. That should be a wonderful night. So until next month, please watch good movies or bad movies. Listen to some great music or some bad music. Just stay artistically connected and we'll be back next month for some sexy time. Until next month, all the best. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.